you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of John chapter 19. I just want to continue this, uh, this spirit of worship that uh, the choir has really kind of set the table with, John chapter 19. Go ahead and hold your spot there. We're going to move through a few passages of Scripture uh, this morning. If you want to follow along with me, you can. That's always a good thing. Uh, if, uh, if we move a little too quickly, you can follow on the screen behind me. But John 19, we're going to get to uh, in just a bit as we move through this message. So last Sunday, I talked a little bit as we kind of set our sights towards Easter uh, about why Jesus uh, died. And we looked at some of the specifics, some of the moving parts in the Easter story in Scripture, that true story. Of, uh, of what brought about the, the crucifixion of Jesus. On one level, there, was the re, there were the religious leaders that were jealous of Jesus because of the position that he had attained. He was incredibly popular with the people. Folks were clamoring to him to hear his... Yeah, ultimately turned against him. And uh, the religious leaders were envious of that. So on one level, they uh, ultimately turned against him, and he died because of the envy, the jealousy of the religious leaders. On another level, he had a disciple, Judas Iscariot, who, uh, who was a thief. I mean, he was not... He was not a good person. He, he, was, uh, he was greedy and uh, ultimately betrayed Jesus. And that's what kind of put all the, the machinery into motion specifically as well. He partnered with the religious leaders to turn Jesus over. Uh, and, and then on, on top of that, you know, at the same time, um, as, as all of those things began to come together and come, in, come into place, uh, Pilate was a coward. He was a, a Roman ruler who was over the people of the Jews, but he could have done whatever he desired. But Pilate could have set him free, and he chose not to. He was a coward. And he, and he cowered to the people. He bowed to the requests of the people. But ultimately, we succumb for us. It was when Jesus died was because we're sinners and because God is loving, that he chose to come for us. It was part of the plan from the very beginning. Scripture says from the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. And it was part of God's plan, knowing obviously that we would sin, that when he created us, this is mind-blowing, that when God created us, he knew what it would cost him. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God chose to breathe life into Adam and to bring him into existence and from him create woman to create Eve and every other person in history, when God created in Genesis 1 and 2 as God, he knew what it would cost him and he created us anyway. And so Jesus died for a number of reasons, some of those practical reasons, the machinery that was put into place, but other reasons would be on a spiritual level because he loved us and because we needed a Savior. As everything began to come together, if you read the Gospels, and I hope you will this week, when you read the Gospel message and all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about the, the, the death of Jesus and the, the resurrection of Jesus. When you read that story, what you see is that as everything began to come together, it all started in the Garden of Eden there, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where Judas and those leaders finally did arrive together, and Jesus was there with his disciples, and he was praying. And if you remember the story, his disciples couldn't stay asleep, and Jesus would pray for them to keep watch and to keep praying, and yet they would fall asleep again. Jesus had, had withdrawn himself, and he was praying to the Father, and he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Remember that prayer? That's where the victory was won, many would say, that, that, that he would pray in the garden, if possible, Lord, take this cup from me. He knew what it would cost him to bear the sin of the world. He wasn't afraid of pain. There have been martyrs for 2,000 years that have died for the sake of the gospel that, that the Lord has given, a, a, I believe, a special grace to, a special strength to in their moment where they 
would die for their faith. Jesus wasn't afraid of the pain. He wasn't in a moment of weakness, and I believe he was not definitely not at a place of fear. He knew who the victor was, and it was himself. Jesus, however, in the garden knew what it would cost him to bear your sin and my sin, and as he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If you read through the Old Testament, the cup was a reference to the wrath of God on the sin of people. And Jesus knew that he would be separated from the Father when he died there on the cross that day. If it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not what I will. Funny, we just sang that. Not what I will, but your will be done. And in the garden there, when, the, when, when Judas came and betrayed him with a kiss, and when the Roman authorities came and took him and they arrested him, Jesus knew what was on the horizon. He understood fully and he understood clearly and he embraced it. And you were part of that. He would be taken through a series of six trials. Three of those trials were Roman in nature. That's where you see Pilate and Herod named. Three of the priests named. The Jewish in nature. That's where you would see Caiaphas or Annas, the high priest, named. Six of those trials, most of which had illegal components that were involved. And, uh, and it would be through those trials specifically that the Jews would, would charge Jesus with blasphemy for claiming to be a king, and they felt there was no king but Caesar. And the result of that was that Jesus would ultimately be beaten. If you remember, we looked at this last week, Pilate had an opportunity to set him free, but he chose instead to flog him, hoping the people would say, well, that's good enough for us. And so he was beaten by the Roman authorities. They were very good at what they did. It was a very gruesome uh, uh, endeavor whenever they would take a whip and, and at the end of that leather strip would be multiple leather strips with typically bone fragments or shards of metal. And they knew how to, to beat a person for the sins of it was just absolute shreds. And that's what happened to Jesus, the innocent, being treated for the sins of, of all mankind. It was a Roman scourging. At the end of it, he would be made to carry his own cross. It's like digging your own grave. It's like knowing that you're about to die before the executioner's squad and they tell you, why don't you take the shovel and dig your grave so that you'll have a place to land when we shoot you. He's carrying his own cross. Part of the way through is he began to physically, not as a sign of any other weakness except physical exhaustion and lack, he begins to struggle, and a Roman authority points a man, Simon of Cyrene, of a whole completely different nation, more than likely a whole different continent, and he points him into service, and he says, you carry this cross, and Simon of Cyrene had the privilege, really, of carrying the cross of Jesus to a place called Golgotha. It was called Golgotha because it was more than likely shaped like a skull. Golgotha translated translates into the place of the skull. Some believe today that there is a building over that particular spot, but it would be there that Jesus would be crucified. Nails between his wrists for the bones to bear his weight. 2,000 years ago, the wrists were considered part of the hand as they would write about this. And so one nail through one wrist, another through the other. Most believe probably one nail through both feet. It, it was not uncommon for crucifixion to take place in the first century, especially under Roman rule. They used it as a deterrent for the worst of criminals, often leaving the bodies there on the roadside wherever the crucifixion would take place so that people, families, good and bad alike, could see it and be reminded of who ruled this land. It was the Romans that ran the show. And don't cross us. 
So Jesus was placed on a cross like that. And as was often the case, most would die as a result of crucifixion, not from the pain through their wrists and through their feet. They would die from asphyxiation. They were not able to breathe. And you can imagine the physical difficulties of this where the person crucified in order to gain a breath because as they sag under the weight, their, their lungs would begin to hasten as those nails would be felt in the raw nerves there through the feet and through the arch as they pushed up just to gain a breath. And then they would sag back down again with the pain relocating, not from the feet, but now back instances of some time. And over and over and over, this would take sometimes hours. There had been instances of sometimes days before a person would die. For Jesus, it would be a matter of hours largely. Most would probably agree it was the beating that took place beforehand that brought his body to a place where he did not live long on the cross. What the Romans did, what the Jews did was violent. It was designed to shame. It would be outlawed in the fourth century. At the end of Jesus' life, after he had already passed, the custom was to break the legs often of times or to stay there until they died. But it wasn't uncustomary for them to break the legs of those who were on the cross just to speed things up so that they could not push up and get that extra breath. The scriptures tell us time they came to check Jesus, <clears throat> he had already died. And so a Roman, the scriptures tell us, soldier thrust a spear up into his side. No bone was broken. Ironically, this would fulfill prophecy. And yet Jesus had already been dead. Prophecy would speak of all these things in detail long before Jesus would ever be crucified. Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah, 700, 750 years before Jesus would come. And remembering Jesus is eternal when he was born on earth, wasn't his beginning. He's always existed as God. But Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 5, he says, but he, speaking of the Messiah, 750 years or so before Jesus would come, he says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Remember, one of the reasons he died is because we're sinners. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Another reason he died is because he loves us. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Much of those three verses were fulfilled by Jesus specifically as he died on the cross. Psalm chapter 22, down in verse 16, David would write here in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus would come. Crucifixion was not even in existence at this point. David would write in this Psalm, beginning in verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This was all prophesied in scripture. So what was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross, this gruesome event? Some have mocked. I saw a video just a couple of weeks ago of a person who was just mocking the, the, the whole portrayal of all this, right? The violence and, and all of the, the, the details and, and, and why, almost saying it like, like, why would God do this, 
right? One of the reasons God would do this as part of his plan was because Jesus would be a sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says so much about the role of Jesus and how his sacrifice of himself is a once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Read this passage along with me. It says, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, that meaning in his holiness, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus died, he experienced everything he did for our sacrifice. He was the sacrifice that could not be the Old Testament plan that God had. There had to be a Savior who would come to wash it away once and for all. John 1.29, John the Baptist would see Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. How can that happen when a sacrifice that's suitable is made? When you read that word in the New Testament, that word propitiation, it's a big dollar. And the Father accepted it. And so he died. He died as a sacrifice. But he also, Hebrews would tell us, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, he also died as a substitute. Hebrews 9, <clears throat> verse 22, and according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no died. One of the things that happened immediately at his point of death was that the, the veil in the temple, right, the majestic temple, the center of Jewish worship, that the veil of that temple, this heavy veil that had separated the Holy of Holies where only certain priests could enter, right? Certain times, this veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn. The Bible says specifically from top to bottom, this veil was torn. And there was a significance there on, on two levels, really. On one level, that veil being torn at the death of Jesus signified and it showed that, that there was no longer separation between man and God. That when we come to God, we come to him through Jesus. The only separation is when our sin has not yet been forgiven. Our separation has been broken through Jesus, but also the veil was torn from top to bottom signifying that it's God who initiated. It, it wasn't torn from bottom to top as though somehow, you know, we're the ones who initiate a relationship with God. It starts with him, right? God is the one who initiated this particular relationship. And the result, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, I told you I was going to come back to this verse. The, the, the result, what, what a beautiful verse this is. It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives today, and the only way a person is right with God is through a relationship with Christ, not our good deeds, not our religion, not by coming to church, not by putting money in a plate. None of those things make us right with God. It's only when we come to God through a relationship ultimately with Jesus. And so we pick up there today. That's where we put dead. He would be buried, and at that point in the story, as we head towards resurrection next week, this is where we pick up. And I want to ask a disciple, I want to ask you, what, what kind of a disciple are you? You know, I, I just so much of what we sing in churches like ours today are songs about the cross, songs about the blood that Jesus shed. Bible uses terminology that says that we're disciples, and I want to ask you a question. What kind of a disciple are you? 
if you are one. We this story. We're going to read what John has to say about them specifically in John chapter 19. These are two people that are very easy to miss in the story. They are certainly not the center of the crucifixion of Jesus. These two men, uh, even though they are easy to miss, if we just lock in a bit, what we find is, is that they are an amazingly strong and powerful man by the name of Gemoni to us and a challenge to us at the same time. One is a man by the name of Joseph and the other is a man by the name of Nicodemus. Somewhat ordinary names, right? Joe and Nick. <laughs> so let's jump in. John chapter 19. Let's begin in verse 38. Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of, the Jew, of, of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, and so he came, and he took away his body. Nicodemus, who at first, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. These two men remind us of a principle, and I, I, hope, this, I hope this principle is one that you'll jot down, and I hope it's one that you'll take, take to heart because it applies to us as well. And the principle is this, that when you look to measure the impact of a person's life, the impact of one's life in many ways, can be measured by the number of, of five-second bursts of courage that are present in that person's life. When you look at the impact of a person's life, it's often measured by the number of just five-second bursts of courage that are present in that person's life. It's that little boy on the playground as a lower enough of this who's been bullied and picked on all of his life, who finally says, you know what, I've had enough of this. And he finally hears the words of his teachers and his parents and those who speak into his life who say, you don't deserve this kind of treatment. You are a person of great value. And he finally, in a five-second burst of courage, stands up to the bully one day on the playground and finds out that he really wasn't that tough after all. And his life goes down a different course. It's that businessman in the workplace who's facing intense pressure to ultimately lay down his values and to lay down his morals and to lay down his convictions, who finally, after seeing all of his co-workers or all of her co-workers, ultimately make the decision to bargain far too much for a paycheck, finally walks into the boss's office and in a five-second burst of courage takes a stand for what is right and for what is true. Their life changes, and there may be some cost, clean conscience, but their life takes on a new track, a track of peace and clean conscience and joy. I think in a lot of ways, a person's influence, their impact can be measured by a series of five-second bursts of courage 
where we make the decision to ultimately put him on display, who puts his truth on display, who puts his nature on display. This was Joseph of Arimathea. We see him. Let's go back to verse 38. Again, it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus... If we put in all four Gospels, Matthew chapter 27, in his account, tells us that he was wealthy, tells us that he was rich. We don't know how he gained his wealth. We don't know why he was wealthy. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. This Jewish ruling council was largely the group of religious leaders who were envious of Jesus, who ultimately <laughs> sentenced blasphemy for claiming to be God. Whenever people make the statement, when you hear people in secular conversations or if you like to read certain things of a religious nature and they make the statement, oh, Jesus was crucified by the Jews was because he claimed to be God. They charged him with blasphemy. I mean, how are you charged with blasphemy if you don't claim to be God? He was not included in the number of those who sought to crucify Jesus. John gives us a little bit more of the Jews, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. See, when you're the fish that's swimming upstream, you become easier bait for those that are bigger who are headed your direction. Joseph had been a secret disciple. He had been a disciple, a follower of Jesus in the shadows. He wouldn't cast his vote to say, let's crucify him, but he also wouldn't stand and raise his hand to say, let's think this one through again of Jesus. Joseph had everything to lose. Do you see this? He had everything to lose by moving forward with his plan to ask for Pilate, from Pilate the permission to take Jesus off the cross. He had everything to lose. He had his reputation. He had his standing in the Sanhedrin as a Jewish leader, and he probably lost both of those in that circle. He also risked losing his own life. After all, when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, what we find afterwards is that the Jews wanted to try to take Lazarus's life as well. Why? Because Lazarus was exhibit A, that Jesus has the power to raise someone from the dead. <laughs> For Joseph of Arimathea, he had every reason to fear uh, his life would ultimately come with a price tag now in Jewish circles. Because if they did this to Jesus, remember, he's taking his body from the cross. This is post-crucifixion, all right? When he's taking Jesus' body, requesting permission from Pilate, whether he literally took him from the cross or whether he had already been taken down and he just requested permission to take the body of Jesus with him, he knew what Jew the wind. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but at that point, up until then, a secret disciple because he feared the Jews, takes a bold step without even saying a word except, can I please have his body? He says, I am proud to be a follower of Jesus. To the man, first place, Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. It says in Matthew's version, when it was evening, there came a ritual of Jesus. Matthew doesn't say anything about him being a secret disciple. He does add that he was wealthy. He says, this man went to Pilate and, and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. Did you catch that part? The tomb where Jesus would be laid after him. 
It wasn't, hey, let me just come and maybe quietly ask Pilate for his body, you know, because I'm still going to try to be secret here. It wasn't going to bat him in my own step out of the shadows and into the clear blue light. And, and I, not only that, I'm going to bury him in my own family tomb. But regardless, he comes to Pilate and he asks for the body to lay it in his own tomb. Verse 60 says that he had hewn in. Back to John chapter 19, there were two men that day. There was a man named Joseph and there was a man named Nick, Nicodemus. We first find Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Do you remember him there? It was Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. It says there was a man of the Pharisees. Nicodemus and Joseph would have known each other already. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night. Nick at night. <laughs> came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. This is the beginning, the early days of Jesus' ministry, John chapter 3. We're not in John chapter 19. We're not at the end of John. We're the early part of John, early part of Jesus' ministry. Nicodemus, also a member of the Pharisees, much like um, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a man of reputation. He was a man whose voice was always listened to in Jewish circles, probably was a man that was wealthy himself who had everything to lose, had already come to Jesus at, at night early in his ministry, and, and it was in that context of that early meeting at night that Jesus shared with him the most famous verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, because Nicodemus wants to know, what, is it, what does it mean to be born again? being born easily. That's impossible. It's about being born again spiritually, a new birth on the inside. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, even you, Nick, find me, even me, whose group is going to be responsible a few years from now for crucifying me, even you, Nick, that God so loved you that even if you believe in me, you'll never die but have eternal life. Nicodemus had already crossed paths with Jesus before. He already knew who he was. He already knew what he was all about. They had discussed these things already. And somewhere along the way, what we can assume is that Nicodemus also chose to bow his heart and to bow his life before Jesus. John chapter 19, back to John 19, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Some they prepare his body for burial. They wrap him in linen wrappings, as was the Jewish custom, one linen wrapping for the body men. Taking the body of a full-grown man, Jesus, fully God, and placing him, he had dug out himself, and rolling the stone in front, they leave. I wonder how far they out of the shadows and into the open as followers of this Jesus. I wonder if it was a fleeting thought, what's going to happen now? How long before we hear this on our door? We're drug out and tried and nailed to a cross. It was a Friday. Joseph and Nicodemus did not have a did not have a New Testament. Joseph and Nicodemus did not have a rest of the story. Joseph and Nicodemus did not have anything but 
the promises of God to cling to. For all they knew, if they were like the other disciples, they would assume that, well, we must have missed it. This was just the end. Remember, Peter and some of the other boys would go fishing. They went back to their old job. Remember the two walking on the road to Emmaus in the book of Luke, chapter 7, I believe it is. They're walking with their heads down saying, you know, we, we, we thought. <laughs> we thought this was the one. We thought Jesus. We thought this man was the one who would come to set us free. Who knows? Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, for all they knew, they may have thought this was it as well. They had no experience of the resurrection. It hasn't happened yet. And with, with no rest of the story like you and I have, they stepped up to the plate and, and they boldly aligned themselves with Jesus. Fast forward 2,000 years, right? And we find ourselves as no less disciples of Jesus. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you've made the decision to pray and ask Christ to forgive your sin that he died for and to take over your life, if you've made that decision, let me just say, there's no room for cultural Christianity, right? I mean, that, that is laid to rest. That, that is an anomaly. We like to use that term, cultural Christianity, to describe someone who raises their hand that says, I believe in Jesus, or I prayed a prayer a long time ago, or I joined a church, or I got baptized, right? But, 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 but they don't have any desire him as Lord of their life under his leadership as Lord, really no desire to submit to him as Lord of their life. We, we would like to soften the edge and say, oh, that, that's a cultural Christian, Sometimes we even apply denominational tags, right? You know, a, a, a cultural Catholic, a cultural Baptist, a cultural fill-in-the-blank, just described what the Gospels lay out. He didn't go through all of that for us to be cultural followers of him. That doesn't even exist. It's an anomaly. Either we are on ground. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is describing the seven churches in the book of Revelation. <laughs> And there's one, the church warm, made to see yourself. He says, I will spew you out of your mouth. What? The, the picture there is that lukewarm, nominal, cultural, it is just sickening. Sickening. And I can understand why if I had done all this. <laughs> it's like, just, don't play games with me, man. Like the foot of the cross. The ones who crucified me played games at the foot of the cross. I wonder if he thinks. Just all in or all out. And it was Joseph, and it was Nicodemus. For all we know, they were at the cross. I mean, they were there, I guess. They probably witnessed it. Who, who that, that effect, that, that, that was the moment. That was the hinge. I mean, can't you imagine when you see that? <laughs> the resurrection didn't even happen yet. They're like, you know what, we're all in. We're all in. Imagine the joy <laughs> for them when they realized they made the right choice. And he rose again from the grave. Imagine what it was like for them to say, I'm so glad we didn't cut and run. I'm so glad we're not still hiding in the shadows. Imagine the joy when they were able to say, I'm so glad that we stepped up to the plate to say that's my Lord. And even in death, I'm going to treat him with what he deserves. 2,000 years later, we are no less disciples than they are. Disciple. Am I? Are we still playing games at the foot of the cross? Are we still hanging out in the shadows, 
hoping only the Sunday crowd knows we're really a follower of him and trying to keep it under wraps for most everybody else. Or in our workplace, on our campus, in the circles where we hang, in our neighborhood, with our families, are we proud to say, not being weird, not being strange, not, take, not, not trying to be somebody we're not, but we're willing to say, I'm proud of that. And when they don't, we're Jesus. And then, the best we can, our lives reflect that. And when they don't, we're quick to say, Lord, I blew it, forgive me. Help me to honor you. You know, when we see these two men, often we miss them in the story. <clears throat> often we miss them, Joe and Nick. But man, they are powerful examples of what it looks like to step out of the shadows and into the open, to say, I align my life with Jesus. People next to that will check the box. Maybe even some in this room, right? They'll, they'll, they'll check the box. Did it. Next. Did it, right? I came and worshipped. I'll be back to do it again maybe next year. Uh, let me just say, there have been many times I've been here and I've checked the box. So let me just say, I'm not slamming anybody. What I am saying is God wants far more than that from those who know him. Next weekend, what an opportunity to worship. <laughs> let me say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that I'm not who I used to be. Thank you that I don't have the weight of worry and doubt of wondering where I'm going to go when I die. Thank you that I never face anything in my life that is going to be so overwhelming that I can't make it through because I know you're always with me. Next weekend, we have the opportunity to say, Lord, thank you for saving me, though I bring nothing to the table. And yet I would say, why wait to next week? Let's just embrace a posture starting today as his followers that lives a life vocally and lived out that says, Lord, just thank you. And whatever you want of me, I give because I'm proud to be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you've given your life to Christ, I hope that today... You can just draw a little circle around yourself for just a moment. And honestly, from your heart, just thank him for who he is and what he's done for you. That he says, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are his daughter. You are his son if you've given your life to Christ. <laughs> You're part of his family and he loves you immensely. He's never going to turn and run. He's never going to betray you. He's never going to do to you what was done to him and your pain and your hurt and your sorrow that you feel at times in your life. He gets it. He understands. And he loves you. Even when we're not who we need to be, even when we do turn and we get into the high weeds and when we wander and when we just blatantly sin, there's never an excuse for that. But even there, he loves you. And for some today, maybe you've never made the, the one decision that is the most important decision of all. And that decision is to give your life to Jesus. In some ways, I preached an Easter service a, a week ahead. I don't know, it's just what I felt compelled to preach. But man, this is the gospel. This is life. This message that I've shared today, that he came and he died and, and he rose. And he lives today for the express purpose of bringing you into a relationship with God. That even though God is holy and perfect, he did all of this so that you, who are far from it, myself included, 
can still have a relationship with him. It doesn't come when we try to get better. It comes when we say, Lord, I don't even deserve this, but Jesus, I believe that you're God. Would you forgive me? Ask Jesus, and would you take over? And right where you sit today, in your own words, you can ask Jesus, believing that he's God, to forgive you and to save you. And right now where you sit, he'll do it. Lord, thank you for beautiful message of the gospel. Lord, for us, us who've, who've come to know you through Christ, Lord, our lives have been changed, but at the same time, we now have been put on the same mission that you're on. That's why we, we're called to tell. That's why we're called to share. Use. But Lord, it is part of our responsibility now to share, to live a life that puts you on display. And so God, help us to do it well. Help us to do it in joy, knowing we've got the best message in all of history. So God, help us to be disciples who no matter what are all in, out in the open for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.